You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see what is G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller. This week's podcast is a story of tragedy, survival and resilience. In 2014, Jamie Manning was driving home from work and crashed his truck into a tree and uh, was trapped in the truck and it caught on fire. And uh, Jamie, or Dodge as he's known, received burns to a lot of his body, ended up losing a leg and a hand from the accident. And uh, on this week's podcast, I'm talking to Jamie and his wife, Karen Dodge and Kaz, to their friends uh, about their life leading up to the accident, the accident itself, the recovery from the accident and the uh, changes they've, their life has had since the accident. You know, this was a tough podcast to make and I would suggest probably before you guys listen to it that you uh, get yourself a box of tissues handy because this is quite the moving story and like I said, it's a story of tragedy and survival and resilience and really gives us a glimpse into the human spirit and the will to survive and gives us a great lesson in always looking on the bright side of life. So I hope you guys enjoy this chat with Dodge and Kaz Manning. Dodge and Kaz Manning, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Hey, Warwick. How are you? <laughs> Hi, thanks. I'm good. How are you going, Kaz? Good. Well, this is going to be a fun chat. You know, you guys are pretty inspirational and we'll get into exactly why you guys are so inspirational later on. Maybe we'll talk a bit about what do you do for work these days and what's your life like these days? So in the drought a couple of years ago now, uh, I started buying a few cheap cattle, um, fatting them, and then eventually bought it, started to buy my cows and add it to them. So at the minute I've got a few cows around me. Um, so I guess you'd say raising calves, as they say in America. Um, mm-hmm. And I work for a trucking company doing their driving, so organising their cattle to go onto trucks and yep. uh, where they've got to go to as such. And actually, still got my foot, foot in the radio. I'm doing a bit of judging, which I'm enjoying. Enjoy that I have a lot. Oh, that's um, so that's been a bit of a getaway, I guess. And apart from that, just um, being a great husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do a few <laughs> gigs too. Yeah, do, yeah, I do a lot. Of, uh, no, I say a lot. Do quite a few speaking gigs, motivational talks. Yeah, and we'll get to the reason for that here in not very long. Karen, what do you spend your time doing these days? I'm a drug and alcohol counsellor with Royal Flying Doctors. So, yeah, I get the honour of going around sort of in the sort of more far-reaching rural and remote areas and, um, yeah, helping people with their drug and alcohol issues. Wow. Um, do you have uh, like a mental health background? Uh, counselling. Okay. And let's... My podcast goes out to people all around the world, so most people wouldn't know what the Royal Flying Doctor Service is. Do you want to share a bit about what that is? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing charity we have here in Australia, probably one of the highest regarded charities in all of Australia it is, and 
we, I guess it's probably better known for a retrieval sort of thing. You think about if anyone's sick or injured in, you know, remote rural Australia, they send out a plane and bring that person back to wherever they need to go to get medical care. But we do a whole lot more than that. We do, you know, GP and, uh, you know, primary healthcare clinics. We do dental clinics and we have a mental health and drug and alcohol team, which I'm lucky enough to be part of. And, yeah, sort of makes those services accessible to, um, yeah, more rural, remote areas where they don't have anything out there. Yeah, you'd probably fly into some pretty remote places, wouldn't you? Uh, Yeah, I don't. Um, I'm based out of Dubbo, so the Dubbo team, but we do have it spread right across Australia throughout. We have a big team out of Broken Hill. They're going even more remote locations than I do. I go up as far as Lightning Ridge and out to a community grower, which is an opal mining community and a few other places in between. You know, even that would be something interesting for uh, people from around the world. Think about, like, say, Lightning Ridge or, like, some of the opal mining communities where people live underground. Yeah. Oh, out there they don't live so much underground. They have a lot of camps. So I'm about to, as soon as we finish this, I'll, I'll head off and I'm going up to spend a couple of days in Grawan and... You know, most of the people up there, they don't have power. They don't have water sort of thing. You know, they're reliant on on sort of um, generators and that. It's quite usual. You go out there and, and they don't have anything going on at the time, like the generator's broken down or they don't have money to buy fuel. You know, they don't have, you know, fridges or, you know, that running water. It's sort of a very different life out there. Wow. that That's almost like post-apocalyptic sort of <laughs> living and it probably looks a bit like you know, some sort of a Mad Max movie out there, does it? Yeah, a lot of people go out there to almost escape, I think. Right. There's a lot of people going out there to find their find their riches, but then a lot of people going out to almost hide from the world and escape. Yeah, I was thinking that, you know, it'd be a certain sort of person that could live like that, but there's also a certain kind of person who would want to live like that. And I imagine, I imagine you run into some pretty interesting characters out there especially oh, being, like especially be, like being in the mental health field going to a place to where almost everybody that lived there possibly has some inner demons about some things you know yeah and that's that's the thing you know most people come to that issues with drug and alcohol because of the traumas and going out there and sitting down with them and listening to their stories it's it's amazing and such an honor i bet i bet to to, to be witness to that sort of thing. So how long have you been doing that? Uh, not that long. I've been here probably about 18 months before then. I was with um, a New South Wales health team, so our government health, and I was with the rural drought team. So when the drought, we had a really hard drought in Australia, um, a lot of farmers were, you know, turning to suicide to end the suffering. So we were more of a peer support group going out, someone that they could relate to on that one-on-one basis, going out to their farms and just having a chat with them, sort of encourage them to reach out if need be to more, um, you know, mental health sort of out there, whatever they may need. So that was a great job too. You know, that's something, you know, I've been, we moved back to Australia. Uh, so I came to America in 1990 and, and then my wife and son and I moved back to Australia in 2006 and came back at the end of 2010. 
and since the end of 2010, I've been, I've been, you know, flying back and forth quite a bit doing clinics and stuff. And the thing I've noticed in that last 13 years now is that mental health, especially men's mental health, is talked about where it didn't used to be. You know, like I, I, I'd fly back for a clinic or whatever and, you, you know, you go to the pub for dinner and you go to the loo when you're in there and on the wall above the urinal there's a thing like about the, you know, the big black dog, What you know, if you're having trouble, if you're having struggles, call this number. And, you know, that used to be not something anybody talked about. And so it's really, it's kind of cool that you're in the thick of that. So, Dodge, you were a, um, for quite a long time, you were a, a, a bull rider. Tell us a bit about your life as a bull rider. It's something I was never born into. Uh, I was actually at college, ag college, uh, and a couple of mates said, oh, how about we go to, I think it was Stroud Rodeo or Gresford, but we go to rodeo and get on a steer. And I sort of, I played football all my life and I sort of, why or what? Or, so off I went, um, didn't know what they use as ropes or anything, knew nothing you, about that. Did you ride, grow up riding horses? Um, no, but I, when I was 12, um, some good mates of mine got hold of me and I, I grew up in town. Oh, okay. going And um, they took me, they said, oh, how about you come up home? They bought a place, how about you come up home and do some work for us? So they sort of, I guess, I wouldn't say, wouldn't say I was going down a, a, the wrong path, but just be hanging in town and half bored when there's no football playing. So at, from, at, from 12 year old, I started, that's when I first started experiencing horses. Um, and then from once I left school, which is pretty much horses from then on. Um, but as far as the, the, the rodeo went, um, I, yeah, I rodeo for 20 years, uh, I wouldn't. I wasn't. wasn't a champion. Um, something I loved doing. Passionate about it. Trained a lot. Uh, went to states rodeoing. Went to New Caledonia and Vanuatu, teaching some of the natives over there, which is a good experience. Um, what I really took a lot out of it was the people I met, the places I, I discovered. Um, Karen travelled with me for most of the time, but the last sort of, I guess, when our kids started getting a bit older, she sort of stayed at home with them which that was the hardest bit for me, was, you know, driving away and knowing they were staying there for the weekend. Sort of, as we're talking about, it gets in your head a little bit. But um, it was a good part of life. I never, I, 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 honestly, it wouldn't change. I don't think I'd ever changed my life as to where I am now, even with the accent we'll talk about later, I suppose. But, you know, we, we lived a good life. So, Kaz, let's talk a bit about being a bull rider's wife. I mean, you know... <laughs> My wife would not do well with the uncertainty of that that sort of lifestyle. How did how did you handle him riding bulls for twenty years? Which you know, it's. I had Ty Murray on the other day, and and he kept referring it to it as you know the world's most dangerous sport. And you know, you could argue that it is. So how 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 was how did you handle with him him doing such a dangerous thing? I guess because I was there from the start and watched it build, I didn't step into it halfway through I guess I was there for every step of the way as it went from steers and novice bulls and then open bulls and Mm. a few injuries and he's very much don't worry about it he doesn't I don't know whether he doesn't feel pain or doesn't listen to that pain but he's like oh no everything's right um yeah I think at the the only time he broke things were like 
never he's never broken anything that required plaster which is kind of funny it was always bits off his spine or ribs or things like so what, that what you're saying is he he hasn't had too many breaks he's just broken his back that's basically what you're saying <laughs> yeah you know a wing off a spine and you know that's hardly worth mentioning those sort of things a couple of head injuries lots of stitches lots of stitches um I imagine a lot of lot of facial stitches. There's quite a few, quite a few horns or or, or skulls to heads in bull riding, isn't there? Yes. I had some beautiful scars on my chin from being pulled down <laughs> on the bull's head, probably about eight times, nine times, I'm not sure, but they were beautiful scars. I love them. Now they've been burnt off. <laughs> and he's short changed. <laughs> probably not real dramatic about his injuries. He's like, come up, can you fix this? I'm like, no, I can't fix that. Go see a doctor. So, uh, Dodge, you you broke your back at least once, didn't you? Right, young. I um, yeah, I actually fractured my spine, um, C five. And I knew I was bad. I was in Sydney, down Sydney show riding, and got thrown off. And I went to the they had. Uh, I probably should mention the the medical practitioner. Just an there. ambulance, sort of there. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of a second grade. Wasn't so much a paramedic or anything, but I said, mate, I've done something wrong with my neck. I was all uh, numb down one side. He said, oh, you'll be right, mate. Sit on that chair over there and see how you go. I knew it wasn't right, but he came back about half hour later. He said, how are you going? I said, oh, not real good. He said, well, you'll be right. So off I went. Ended up going home. We are living in Coonabarab at the time. I said to Karen, I think we'd better go to the doctors. So we went in there and they, they checked me out. They said, oh, you're right. It was actually 12 months to the day. Sydney show again, actually. Um, I got another book. And I got thrown off, the bull turned back and actually caught the back of me and whip, whiplashed my neck back and snapped the vertebrae off, off my spine. And when they'd done the x-rays, that's when they saw the, the fracture from last year. So I actually fractured the year before. Um, yeah, maybe you mentioned that time. It was a bit more than that. You actually was in unconscious for a couple of days <laughs> in intensive care until he signed himself out. <laughs> And went back to Sydney Showground dressed in a hospital gown and cowboy boots. And my boots and a hospital gown and my hat under my arm. Uh, Rocked well, up to the main entrance of the Sydney show asking someone to pay his taxi. I never wanted to stay in hospital. Uh, I'm, I guess after 20 years of, of being injured, you sort of get to know your body. It's the way I perceive it anyway. Well, it's, it's something's not right, but I think I can get away with it. No need for a doctor to check it, or so whether that's the right, or it's probably not the right thing to do from a doctor's perspective. But to get on with life, well, that was how I done it. Yeah, but even like that first time he he did it, and he said, "Oh, he just came home and it was all okay." I think it was while he, you were still down there, he had a show approach him, and oh, the Guinness World Records were doing. You know, they used to do a series on TV and. They said, oh, you know, we're looking for someone to break the Guinness World Record of riding a mechanical bull. Are you up for it? And he's like, of course. <laughs> I think he rang me up and he said, oh, what do you reckon? I'm like, oh, you only live once. He's like, what if I look like a bit of a fool? Like, I don't ride mechanical bulls. I'm like, I'll just give it a go. And I think I went down and he, he filmed it's it. And he, like we went to this. After I broke, my, broke the, snapped the vertebrae off my spine. Yeah. So this is a couple of days out. after you broke your neck. And you got a yeah. neck brace on. Neck Went brace to the on. studio okay. and he's like, before we walked in, he's he took the neck brace yeah, off. And, I said, hang on, I've got to take this brace off. And I think oh, he so was, you went to the you went to the television studio. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With a neck brace like, on and pulled it off before you went inside. Well, okay. If okay. Saw okay. That, they wouldn't let me go on with it. So it's like, quick, let's hide this. Because they said, come, come the day before, we'll do a little bit of a practice, walk you through what's gonna, what it's all going to look like, what we're going to do. And, you know, he was walking around. I think he, he was holding one of his arms because it was numb. Like the whole side of his body was, was numb. And he sort of, yeah, Lucky went in and had up. a practice. And then they, they're like, didn't do too well. Like, hasn't been on too many mechanical bulls in his life and sort of come off and you could see the producers looking at each other going, oh, what are we going to do with this? I think I had to go for a minute 50 to break it, I think, something like that. But I was bucking off in 30 seconds and I'm like, oh. And they said, uh, how do you think you're going to go tomorrow when we film it? I said, it'll be right. We'll kill it. It'll be right. But um, found a bit of courage overnight and got, got on with it and, End up going two minutes and six seconds and smashed it, yeah. yeah so I you're in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest <laughs> mechanical bull ride. Yeah, claim of fame. <laughs> and you, you're actually, you actually hold two titles. Did you know that? One yeah. is the you're in the Guinness Book of Records for the world's longest mechanical bull ride, and then there's another one that they didn't recognise, which was uh, the world's longest bull ride while having a broken neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might be one off that one. <laughs> How did that, uh, so what was it, what, Channel 7, Channel 9, one of those, was it? Channel 7. Mm. How did they find you? What's the funny part about it, because the Sydney show was uh, run by ABCRA, um, and ABCRA, obviously, obviously um, when I got injured, I hadn't transferred back to the head office. So the head office rang me when I was in Sydney, oh, we hear you down in Sydney um, at the show, would you be interested in going to Channel 7? doing this i thought it's strange to ask me i've just been injured at one of your rodeos <laughs> so but uh, yeah that's how they got onto us I guess channel seven rang up rang up abcra and gone from there oh that's 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 awesome okay so let's get you've you've talked about breaking your neck and having different accidents but let's talk about the accident that changed your life in a big way tell us all about that so i was traveling home from work um and had a had a had a car crash, uh, ended up off the road, collided with a tree, um, trapped in the car, and the actually the, the car caught a light. So in the centre console of the car, which for Americans on the right side, but us on the left, that was why all my injuries were on the left side. Um, started to catch a light. Um, I, I was sort of in and out of consciousness a bit. I don't remember people being there at the start. I don't, let's say 10 minutes into it, um, one of the neighbours up the road. There's actually a funny story about this. Is, um, I've met this fella a couple of times. He's, he's a big fella, about 120 kilo, half rough, tough fella. And he was at work that day, um, but he was fixing it, uh, fixing it, a, a tractor, and part of the tractor hadn't turned up to, to install it to get the tractor going again. And the farmer wanted that tractor the next morning to do some ploughing. Said, uh, said to his boss, how about I go home and I'll come back at daylight, the part will come in overnight out of Sydney and I can get this tractor going for the farmer. So he was actually at home. Like I said, he should have been at work, but he was at home sitting on the lounge and his wife was in the garden and his wife come in. She said, oh, Brock, I think there's been a, a car crash down the road somewhere. She said, oh, no, I've got cattle in the yards, probably just one of the cows kicking the gate or something. 
And she turned to walk out the door and she saw this puff of smoke coming up from the trees. She went, oh, Brock, I think you better come and look at this. So they had three cars and 12 months prior to this, she said to him, we should buy some fire extinguishers and put in our cars. They had a work car, she had a work car, and then they had a hunting vehicle. So eventually, after 12 months, he said, oh, look, right, I'll go and get them. So he finally got them, and he bought two fire extinguishers and put them on the front veranda. A week before this accident, she put one in, in a car and left the other on the veranda. As it turns out, she put the fire extinguisher in the hunting vehicle. When she's turned to walk out the door and said, oh, you better come down, there's, there's smoke here, there is a car crash, they raced to the car, the first car they got to happened to be the hunting vehicle. Of all, of all things, could have been one of all three. Um, got to the scene of the crash, and first, first thing done is grab the fire extinguisher. Wasted whole fire extinguisher on me, just putting me out, not the fire itself. My face, my face was all alight, um, my, my clothes, and actually had, had luck enough to have a knife in the car to try and cut the seatbelt off. But um, so when they've turned up, uh, his wife Brock. Brock the fellow that saved me, his wife was uh, nine months pregnant, well, actually. Yeah, they're about, just about two, pop. three weeks off their baby being due. So she's running around trying to save him. And it's probably worth noting that when they turned up, there was already other people there and they people, said, we've, yeah. we've tried to get him out, there's nothing we can do. And they were sort of at that point standing back, watching the car and sort of, I guess, giving up sort of, you know. No, the fellow, he couldn't do anything. He tried, tried all he could. Another lady's actually on the ground, crab walking backwards, just in a state of shock, I guess. But as Brock's turned up and the, 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 the cab was full of smoke, it was a ute and the cab was full of smoke, so I couldn't was see it right, Was it right side up now? Yes, yeah, right side up, yeah, yeah. But so what is your, is your, is what's trapped, is your leg trapped under the dash or something like that? I was trapped pretty much from the, from the hips down, so yeah. the legs, the motor actually come on top of my lap. Mm. Um, it hit a big gum tree, big iron bark okay. tree, and yeah, pushed everything back. Yeah. So I remember um, Brock saying, oh, Are you right, mate? Who is it? Are you right in there? I said, Oh, and I, I actually recognise his voice. I've had, like I said, I only met him two or three times. And for some reason, I just picked, uh, I just remember his voice. I said, oh, Is that you, Brock? I said, Yeah. He said, Dodge, is that you? I said, Yeah, it's me, mate. Said, oh, we'll, we'll get you out. And we had to wait till the, the seat underneath me burnt enough to create enough of a gap to get my, get me out with him, with his, he had his foot on the door well, just reefing at me. Um, and, and to no avail at the time, I said, mate, I said, um, Brock, you better leave me here because this car's going to blow up and you're going to die with me. And I'll never forget this. He said, uh, he said, no, mate, he said, I'm going to stay here. I'll go down with you. You know, like. He, he pretty much gave his life away just to save me. And his wife's there, pregnant, about to have their first child. And she's there chucking dirt on, on the flames, trying to put it out as well, you know. But, um, a lot of respect to, for the man and, and her to, to do that. Um, so eventually they they got me out of the car. They dragged me maybe 50 metres away from the car. And Brock said within 90 seconds the car burst into flames, just exploded. By this time I'm on the ground and... Yes, state of shock and adrenaline going through my body. I said, uh, Brock, I said, put my leg in. I knew my hip was just okay. I said, can you put my leg in? He said, oh, why? I said, because I'm going to walk home and, and Karen will fix me up. There's only three k's from home. He said, mate, you're not going anywhere. He said, just shut up and lay there. <laughs> so I said, yeah, 
guess in a state of shock and all the adrenaline pumping through my body. Um, and then you want to take on from when you, you your side of it. Yeah, can we get to you in a can we get to you in a second, Cass? You know, the human body is amazing as far as having the ability to look after itself. You know, it and you know, we have we have all the chemicals available to us to do anything we want. You just gotta get the body to release it. And and so in this situation, so like when you're in the car and, and you know, you're on fire, could you feel that? I couldn't cool. feel it. No, um, I do remember sitting there because I had actually we'll go this story too. Um, so my wife and I got we were actually married for twenty five years the other day, an anniversary. But thirteen years after we were married, um, I'd lost three wedding rings just at work over over the course of the thirteen years. I was unsure whether he was just throwing them away. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to pack the kids up and go to the Gold Coast for a holiday for a week. And when we're up there, I said, Karen, how about um, I'm going to go and buy a new wedding ring? She took her head, she said, no way, you've lost three. Next ring will be mine. I said, no, it'll be right. I promise I won't lose it. Off we go down the street and go to the tattoo shop and get the ring tattooed on my finger. I said, well, I can't lose this one, can I? <laughs> I come back. I said, oh, what do you reckon? She said, oh, she said, if you ever lose that, that's it. I'm, I'm going to leave you. No more. <laughs> I said, we're done. If you lose that, that's, we're over. You lose the <laughs> tattooed one. wedding ring off your finger, you're done. Uh, here I am sitting in the car burning burning to death and and I actually distinctly remember her saying, if I lose this wedding ring, that's it. So I actually got my, my, my thumb and put over my finger and, and tried to cover that wedding ring. And as I'd pass out, my hand would fall down into the flames, wake back up. I'd put my hand underneath my, my, my arm like this, my armpit, try and protect it. Because I, I cut a lot of timber and did a lot of fencing. I was, I was a hands-on for at work. So my hands were my life. I had to save my hands as well. Um, but I do remember at the time I got to a stage where I went, well, you know what, I'm not going to get out of this car because I was trying to push myself out and I couldn't get out. If I don't put my hand in the flames and try and undo the seatbelt, the flame's about a foot high by this time. Um, I thought it's it's, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt as much as what it's going to later on, you know. So I, I chuck, chuck my hand in the fire and I'm fiddling around there trying to find the seatbelt, which was melted shut, so there's no way it was, gonna, it was coming off. But I'd pull it out and I'd have a bit of a spell and I'd go back in again. And like, like you're saying, I, I couldn't feel a thing, you know. It was, um, you think putting your hand in a flame is going to hurt? Well, I always had that ability with my injuries and stuff over the years to be able to shut shut off the pain and ignore it, just try and get on, the, on with the job. Um, but, yeah, couldn't feel a thing at the time. Um, apparently I, I was moan, moaning and groaning. Um, but, yeah, nothing was going through, you know. It was a lot of no pain. Um, just get on with the job. So eventually when um, I did get carded to hospital. We'll tell that later. You want to that later? Yeah. yeah we'll that later. <laughs> about the ring just remember that one i remember the ring later yeah i was just thinking like like riding riding a, you know like say riding a bull you know when you first start out everything's just you know when you first start riding steers or whatever everything's just a blur and blur, yeah. the longer it goes on it gets to where you're actually aware of what's going on and you're in the moment sort of thing and so bull riding you are in a very dangerous situation 
but you're not panicking, oh, I'm in a dangerous situation. You know, you get into that flow state and whatever. Do you think, do you think doing that for 20 years helped you keep your wits about you in the, the middle of this wreck? I guaranteed, yes. I um, had my motivational speaks. I say a lot of times that I believe 20 years of radioing framed for this situation now when I was in that car crash, you know, um, to face danger or to face fear and get on with it, get on with the job. And he, to me, bull riding was a, was a very, um, what do you say, like a, a, a subconscious state where it's all happening in front of you but your mind's doing it where you your, your conscious mind reacts so slow, whereas your subconscious mind can react in, in, a, in a split second. Right. It takes over and, and takes control. So, yeah, I, I, I do believe that the, the years of radioing actually helped me get through that situation. Yeah, I was thinking, so, like, what was your, what was your mental state like in that? Like, I've only ever had one cack. Where, where were you when you, when you did have that crash? Three k's from home. Um, so near Dubbo. Dubbo. Yeah, it's down Dubbo. So mine was, mine was down near Golgong, so not that far away. Um, and what was – I was living in West Wyalong at the time and I was driving from – I think it was at Scone. I'd been at a horse show at Scone and I was driving back to West Wyalong, had this old F100, and I was, I, it was the first game of – it was the pre-season game of footy, so it was like February or something or other. And um, – I had to get back to West Wyland that night. We're going to play footy. Anyway, I'm driving along and I blew a, a left front tyre, so a passenger side front tyre, and it just pulled me off the road into a stand of small gum trees, not a big gum tree like yours. But in that instant from when the tyre blew when I started kind of going sideways to when I hit the tree, it was like, oh, I'm not going to get home to play footy tonight. So I suppose I could ring up my flatmate and he could go and tell Barney the coach and then who's going to come and get me? Oh, and I just had this whole long conversation about what was going to happen in like in that long. And you know, it's interesting you were saying before about the, you know, you might even you might call it divine intervention. The whole story about you know the guy that pulled you out of the car wasn't supposed to be home from work that day. You were supposed to be at work. He spent a long time not having a fire extinguisher in the car and finally he buys two but they don't put him in the car and then they finally put him in one car and then when they run out of the house to come and help you, they jump into that one, which is a hunting vehicle. So what's a hunting vehicle got in it? It's got a skin and knife in it, doesn't it, to cut the seatbelt. Um, so, you know, it's kind of divine intervention sort of thing, but I've talked about this on the podcast before. I did a, I did a whole podcast on... It was the title of the episode was called Manifesting a Car Crash, but it was all about manifesting things. And be, before I came to America, I'd bought that old F100 off a friend of mine and, you know, the, the paint was all faded and had a bit of rust in it or whatever. So I paid five grand for it, but the NRMA would insure it for 10 grand. So I'd insure it for 10 grand. And I said to three different people on one occasion each, I wish I knew how to write this thing off without killing myself because if I did, I'd take that money and go to America. And it wasn't long after that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Funny how things fall into place. <laughs> mm. Mm. But anyway, I was talking about the whole time slowing down. What was was the ex- – and how, how long do you think you were in the car on fire? Oh, I have no idea to tell you the truth, but I do remember when my vehicle left the road, it was just sort of a, a drop-off of about a metre. 
And I remember looking at these two trees as the car's going sideways. Like, if I can just get between these two trees and I'll be out in the paddock, I can leave the car in the paddock and then if there's any damage, the police won't come along and I can walk home, it'll be all right. Yes, yeah, so in midair, the steering wasn't quite working well. It goes the tree. But, um, and years ago, I had a good old mate that actually was riding a horse down at Wee Jasper on the flats. Played out a can of chase cattle, and uh, a big table drain came up, and the horse hit the other side of the table drain. Broke both his leg, uh, broke both his arms. Good old story he's always telling. He said, "Oh, I remember laying on the ground for six hours till they finally found me. And when they come along, I said, "Oh, just leave me to die." He said. When they pulled me out of the car crash, I actually said that to the to the fellas as a joke, not thinking, "Well, they don't know the story." But that was a bit of bit of a I suppose right. trying to make it lighthearted. I'd leave me to die, will you? And uh, I guess me a joke just, just to get me through it, I guess. But, um, funny, they say funny how things come into your head. Right. Um, so, so you're not you've got no sense of the time you're in there, but or, or how long you're in there. But do you have a sense of what was going through your mind? Was it was it like sheer terror and panic, or was it like okay? I'm going to have to stick my hand in the flames to get the seatbelt undone. And then when you couldn't get it undone, was it, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit? Or was it, okay, what else can I do? How was your mind working in that? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much what I've got to do to get out of this. Um, I, I, I think in my mind I was very calm, just trying to get out, do the best I could. Yeah. Right, so I've got you to get out. So, Kaz, how did you find out about, about the whole thing? Um. Well, another funny story. I had a friend. I was at home and um, I tried to call Dodge on both his his phones. He had a work phone, normal phone, and both of them were going to Message Bank, which is a, unusual around where we live with mobile service, how it is. And a friend had actually called me up, and it's sort of someone I don't speak to that often, and she said, oh, just to have a sense that I needed to call you and ask if you're okay. A couple of emergency vehicles went past and I just had a feeling. And from where she lives to where we live, I think it's probably, what, 14, 15 kilometres, and, you know, there's roads that go off everywhere and and that. So it was quite an unusual call and I'm like, oh, I think we're okay. I can't get hold of Dodge but, you know, um, anyway and and she said oh well I just had a had a feeling I'm like okay well you know we'll catch up later and ended the call and I thought I'll just give him another call and and um still couldn't get hold of him and I'd sort of had dinner I'd I'd actually sent him a text message saying hey I'm just putting steak on the barbie you better be home soon because microwave steak is not that great reheated um and anyway, so by that time I just finished cooking. I told the kids, oh, you know, come on, dinner's ready. And I'd sat down at the table and picked up a knife and fork and this feeling came over me. It was just a knowing and I, I just can't even explain it any more than that, that he'd been in that accident. It wasn't that thing of, you know, if there's an accident, maybe this explains why he's not home and why he's not answering his phones. It was that absolute knowing and that's all I can put it, explain it as and, you know, put my knife and fork down and I said to the kids, just stay here and 
eat your dinner, please. Um, I'm just going for a drive. And I got in the car and at that stage I was just in, I'm not a um, panic worst case scenario sort of person. So even the fact that my mind was there is, is not an unusual thing and, you know, drove down the road, um, went over a bit of a, a rise and by that time it was just going on dark and sort of went over the rise and as I went, you know, over the rise I could see the flames just running up this gum tree and the cars were pulled over on the side of the road and I could see a couple of um, highway patrol cars sort of in the middle of the road sort of either side of this accident and a couple of people just standing there, a couple of police standing there with a couple of other people standing there looking at this car on on flames and I sort of pulled over behind this line of traffic and and walked up and as I was sort of walking up I came across this girl that sort of we'd known from rodeo times and um and she said like I must have just had that look on my face she said what's wrong and I said I can't find Dodge and I think he's in this accident and she said oh okay just just stand there I'll go down and see what I can find out and she started walking a bit further down down towards them and I thought oh no I'm I'm going down there to to talk to them too and and as I sort of I'd only taken walked down a couple of extra meters and that's all it took to I could see um Jamie had made the dog box for the back of his ute so I knew it was like a distinct outline of it and I could see the outline amongst the flames and I knew at that moment it was his vehicle and at that stage you know there was no ambulance there it was just two patrol cars and people watching this and you know my legs went out from underneath me and I'm sitting on the road thinking I'm watching his um you know basically his cremation and this fella came up to me and he said hey you can't sit on the road and I thought no moment I thought that's a funny thing just like worry about all the issues I have at the moment my concerns about me sitting in the middle of the road and a zero and then he's like, no, come on, hop up. He said, he's not in there. They actually took him away. The ambulance is just, you know, the ambulance left. He's he's alive. He's not great, but he's alive. And that was a horrible moment, me sitting there sort of believing that he was still in that vehicle because it was totally light um, at that stage. But in hindsight, looking back, that gave me the sense of how bad, you know, that showed me how bad things could get. And right throughout the rest of everything that came after that was never as bad as that moment. So it gave me a sense of where to grade things from. And mm. like I never, it never ever got that bad, bad again. So that was, I don't know, quite a helpful moment, I guess. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that, that if you had to just, if you got a phone call and said he's been in an accident, he's in the hospital, and you rocked up to the hospital, that how he was when you got to the hospital would be worst case scenario. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And then, so when I did go to the hospital, I sort of um, showing sensitivity now. <laughs> oh, oh no! Well, well, actually, I, I went home, and you know saw the kids and said, look, Dad's been in an accident, stay here. I rang a neighbour, can you come across and stay with the kids? And I actually rang up my friend who had called me to say I have a, I had just this feeling that I needed to call you. Rang her back and I said, that was dodging that accident and her place is between our place and town and, and she's a nurse. 
So if there's anyone that you want to take into the situation, it's a nurse. I said, can I, can you come into the hospital? She said, yeah. I said, radio, I'm, I'm just leaving home now. I'll pick you up on the way in. And, and so she came in with me, which was just wonderful to have her there and went in and sort of had to wait around a little while to until they were happy for me to actually go on the scene. They were working really hard to actually try to even keep him alive at that stage. And I guess it got to the point where they said, okay, you, we can let you in to see him now and, you know, go into the emergency department is in this resus bay. And, you know, I went in and approached it like standing up at the end of the bed and just taking it in. He's now has all these machines breathing for him and he's in, you know, being placed in induced coma and and everything and, you know, at that stage they're waiting on a retrieval team to come from Sydney. So they have this specialist retrieval team with all these amazing doctors that fly up in a fixed wind plane to come up and get him in the hopes of getting him to a major hospital in Sydney and standing there taking it all in. And something like I just got this thought, you need to go and, and look at his tattoo, his wedding ring tattoo, and that this is when this story comes back in. And I, I just said to someone that was there, would it be okay if I walk around that side of the bed? And they said, yes, just don't touch anything. And I walked around and his, um, that, his left hand, it was charred, it was black, and if you've seen anything that's burnt before, it was totally black except for this band where his wedding ring tattoo was, was perfect and that moment went this is okay he's not going anywhere (laughs) it was just that feeling that I think this is going to be fine he's he's not leaving me and um, that gave me that really sense of you know reassurance and and then you know they were sort of trying to inform me about what was going on and and everything and they're like okay you You'll, you'll fly down in this plane with him to Sydney, won't you, because we need to know because they need to actually put it on how much everything weighs and they're trying to, all the equipment, it's all weighed up. We, like they need to know now whether you're going to fly. And I'm like, no, I'm not going down with him. I don't know. I just had this thoughts and uh, probably everyone's heard one of these stories where someone doesn't die until that significant person is there with them. And in my head was he wouldn't dare die if I'm not there. And I thought he needs to get to Sydney alive um, to get to the best medical team and he wouldn't dare die on that flight because they're pulling my friend aside and going, you've got to make her get on this plane because she's going to regret not being there when she dies, when he dies. And um, so I'd worked it out in my head, he won't die if I'm not there. (laughs) Because at that stage they're, they're sort of saying, um, there's only the slightest chance he's going to live through this. Um, yeah. Did they That's, did they have a full sense of all of his injuries at that point in time, or, or it wasn't until he got um, to Sydney? They... Well, they had a little thing, and they were a bit off with some of it. They at that stage they're going to. He's probably not going to live because of the damage that's been done to his lungs and his airways from mm. being not only in the smokes but actually being totally engulfed by it by flames that's probably why he's not going to survive the trip and that's what they were thinking he's going to die probably on that plane he's not even going to make it to Sydney and because of his airways they thought he had a broken pelvis 
which is also um, concerning. Plus he had the burns and when the doctors came up, they were sort of having to trying to cut all the skin because the swelling actually will, um, it restricts all the blood flow and actually kills the limb. So the doctors came up and they were doing all that before they actually even um, the retrieval team came up and sort of did all those sort of things before they got him even on that plane to Sydney. But that's what he sort of, at the time of leaving Dubbo, it was the airways I'm concerned about and the broken pelvis. Um, I, yeah, then I just went home after the plane left. I went home and packed up the kids and uh, went to Sydney and by that stage, yeah, his parents, like when I rang them and said he'll be taken to Sydney, they'd sort of, they, they live in Scone, so they'd gotten themselves to Sydney and arrived before I did and um, my parents came up from the south coast and met me and took the kids for us. But when we arrived and had a meeting with the doctors there, that was when I found out it, it sort of, he'd broken his um, spine, he'd broken his back. Um, they didn't know whether he had any spinal cord injuries, but they knew they'd have to place a couple of rods in his back. He'd broken one hip and dislocated another. He had major head injuries, basically broken every rib, internal injuries. Um, I think the the front part of his skull was burnt so badly they didn't even know whether that was they were going to even, they thought that was going to, die and like they were talking less than five percent chance of even being able to save that front part of his skull um because the so depth the, it was the, actually burnt the bone, yeah. the bone itself was was burnt oh, wow. and um yeah like eyes that said well we don't know whether he's going to have spinal cord injuries we don't like even the the team that was he had so many teams involved in his care like the team that was looking after his brain injuries was sort of they were coming into these big meetings and they're going, oh, I don't know whether guys, whether it's even worth trying to fix everything else because the quality of life he's going to have because the extent of his brain trauma is not going to be one worth living, sort of. He's just not going to have that quality of life left. Um, and, you know, didn't know whether he'd be blind because his, all his eyelids oh, were burnt. burnt off pretty much. Um, his nose was all sort of burnt off. Um, yeah. There was a lot going on and he did end up losing um, his left leg and his left hand, but that wasn't until about 10, I think about 10 days in, I um, he was becoming really, really unwell because at that stage they couldn't even do any um, skin grafts or anything because that's, they said, the reason, like the biggest risk with his was getting infections, burns, open wounds, get infections, but they couldn't do any skin grafts and because he wasn't well enough. Um, the drugs that they were giving him to maintain his um, blood pressure, this noradrenaline sort of closes everything else down so you can't do skin grafts while you've got that on. He was had this massive temperature, though he had him packed with ice trying to cool his body temperature down and and then um, that's when they sort of having to have these conversations about. I think it's time that we have to get rid of the leg and the and the hand, sort of thing. And um, yeah, that was, I guess, thinking about how's he going to feel about this. 
And then I was having conversations with them like, okay, going forward, riding a horse because he was his left leg especially like was burnt so far down it was had damaged all you know the muscles were sort of so badly burnt the bones were burnt the tendons were all burnt I said okay going forward if he's to get back to riding is that going to be better without that leg or with that leg and they're looking at me thinking what the hell is this person thinking (laughs) yeah so Dodge, uh, when they when they flew you to Sydney, were you conscious during the flight? Nah, and when no, you got there, no. It's one thing that amazes me too is I tell this a lot in, the, in my motivational talks is um, so they flew me down by Fitzwing to, to the I guess it's mascot in Sydney. Oh, Bankstown, Bankstown, yeah. and then put me on a helicopter and flew me to the top of the hospital. I went straight to emergency there, and um, there was twenty seven doctors. Walked in that room that first day I was there. Yeah, that first have, time they took him to operating. That many doctors just there doing what they can to keep me alive. It, that blows my mind to have that many people there, you know, Yeah, experts. I think, um, yeah, probably to answer your question, Warwick, um, when he was out at the crash scene they put him in induced coma then and mm. so he didn't wake up for I think it was almost seven weeks. Oh, wow. Um, I was just thinking about the 27 doctors. You'd need them because you've got, internal injuries you've got head injuries you've got burns so you're in an induced coma for seven weeks dodge and i know a friend of mine who went to she went to mexico she used to live partly here partly in mexico one time in mexico she caught oh i'm not some sort of a virus maybe it was like meningitis i'm not sure but she ended up in a coma for a month or so and she had these amazing journeys to all sorts of places that she remembers. Do you, do you remember anything in your coma? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know so much in my coma. I always say that um, I remember getting to the pearly white gates and I'm knocking on the gate and God said, you go away, mate, you're not ready to come in here yet. But that's a bit of a, bit of a fallacy. But, um, I, I, no, well, I, I've talked to a lot of people who've had the same experience, a similar experience that basically have, I'll tell you what, I was talking to a lady a number of years ago who um, her partner tried to tried to choke her to death. At some point in time, she said there was this tunnel and the white light and the whole bit and then she ended up coming back. But she didn't have anybody tell her to come back. But I, I know of a number of people who've been told your job is not finished yet, so you need to turn around and go back. So you, you distinctly remember that? I don't so much distinctly remember that, but it's, it's vaguely in my head. Mm. Um, mm. The first uh, recollection of anything was um, once they brought me out of it, um, I was on, you imagine the medication I was on. Mm. can't think what I was on. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan of your podcast, so I listen to a lot. And a lot of, you know, things that you've discussed, I'm like, oh, okay. So that may have impacted the outcome of different things. So, um he was on ketamine for a long time. On ketamine, um, yep. Yeah, so every time um, he was going back into surgery pretty much every second day um, to do something. So, um, And every time they changed his dressings, it was ketamine. And I, I wondered what that changed in the outcome of how he feels. Right. What was, what was your experience on ketamine? 
I remember um, getting pushed into the, the theatre and then obviously they've injected it in me and I remember going down this like a big spiral shape yep. and every yep. layer I'd get to, a doctor would come out. He'd do a little little job on me. I'd go to the next level. He'd do another, another one, come out and do a job on me. Made for about six or seven times down and right at the end I was shot to the top of this spiral. That's when I come back to. And I said to the doctor, I said, don't you ever give me that ketamine again. The experience of it was like scared me. Yeah, um, I guess it was a long period of time when he was getting the ketamine when he was still in his coma. Right. But then once yeah. he was out of it, and they would give him that ketamine before they would um, do the dressings. Once he was able to say, "Don't give me that ever again. Um, I don't care how much pain I'm in. I don't want to. I don't want to experience that." People pay to experience that, but anyway. Yeah, blows my mind. Special guy on the streets. Yeah, I've had one experience with it that was administered by a doctor, and and it was it was yeah quite quite interesting. So you've been in a coma for seven weeks. When you when you first come out of it, when you first come out of it, do you have a sense that seven weeks have passed, or it's no, like you just no, no. it's like you went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and pretty much yeah yeah yeah. I think though when you pictured like he came out of it he didn't just wake up one day and he was back conscious it was like little windows like like tiny little grips of think oh i think that was him right there awake i remember sitting uh, lying on the bed and there's a little window on the wall uh, um, in front of me which is where i guess the the matrons or the nurse could come in and just have a quick look make sure i was right but i remember um looking watching them in this window, and every time they duck away, I'd get down the bottom of the bed and I was going to walk out of there. I was going home. Um, they'd come running in, you can't be doing this, and they'd hold me down. And must have gone for days. I it's think that was, up. yeah, once you're in the burnt unit. But the burnt unit, yeah. Yeah, because he was in like a special positive air room where you had to go through all these different air seals to try and protect him from getting infections. Infection, and yep. Yeah, yeah. I've seen um, two, seeing the kids. Yeah. I said, Karen, where's the kids? Can you bring them in? She went, no, not yet. I just, for her, she was trying to protect the kids from right. seeing me at that stage. Yeah, but I think probably to answer your question, Mark, you know, when he was first waking up and, you know, he'd had a, um, you know, a tube down his end to breathe, so he had that uh, track mm-hmm. in and, you know, they got to the point where they said, because he'd just be trying to talk and I'm like, I can't understand, I can't read what you're trying to say. And um, they got to the point where, okay, we think we can drop that balloon just for 30 seconds and give him the opportunity to talk and like so and build on that. So the first couple of days they were doing that, like it t- takes a while to actually learn to re-talk with that in your throat. And so the first couple of days there was nothing and he got to the point where he actually got some words out and because I, I was thinking what he was trying to get across were all questions about the accident or things that are going on, but it all relates to these experiences, which probably now in hindsight was the ketamine talking. He was like, these fellas had me bailed up under the bed and all this and, you know, things that weren't even real work was what he was more concerned about. There's little pygmies used to run around the room and 
and they were playing with matchbox cars in the ground and I say, get out of here, go on, get out. And they'd hide under the bed. It was, uh, yeah, it was, that kept me going for a few days. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, Setting up cats on the floor. <laughs> I was wondering how that went. Um, so during that, Kaz, during that seven weeks, do they have – they they have they still have no idea of the ex, the extent of his spinal injuries, like whether he's going to be able to move things. Is that how that was? Yeah, it's kind of um, until he wakes up, we don't know if he's got a spinal cord injury. We don't know the extent of his head injuries. We don't know whether he'll be blind. Um, all those sort of things, and it even took a while until they worked out whether they could save that front part of his skull and all that sort of stuff and I guess and then I was thinking all that time when he wakes up how am I going to explain to him that he's now lost that left leg and left hand because he's always been such an active athletic person um, always outside doing stuff how's he going to take that so that was something I, I had a lot of time to think about how's this conversation going to go and how's he going to react to it. And how did that conversation go? <laughs> well, I think... Bit of an uh, argument? Uh, well, it was, okay, I think today he's actually getting alert enough that he's going to start becoming aware that he's missing left leg and hand um, because he's still all really bandaged up and strapped out in this bed and... And that's so I thought, okay, I think take a deep breath and have this conversation. And then he's like, no, that's not true. I can see it. I can feel it. And then um, I'm like, well, it's not there. And he's like arguing about it. And then sort of then he'd go back and, you know, be back in a sort of unconscious for the, you know, remainder of the day and the next day. I'd have this conversation again because he had no recollection. So take a big breath. And then after a few days, I'm just like that conversation, <laughs> there wasn't much key going into that conversation, Warwick. Um, it was like you don't have a left leg and left hand, get over it. <laughs> because he'd still feel like arguing the point of it. And I'm like you'll work it out eventually. <laughs> um, Dodge, I've heard of phantom pains in limbs that have been taken off. You ever get? get those like your foot itches or your toes hurt yeah uh, it wasn't too bad for the first maybe uh year maybe um and then eventually it started to come come even now i do get it but it's more my hand's pretty good it's just the leg uh it's like a to explain it's like guessing like getting electric jigger or nine volts of power going to your leg like you can feel it coming on you know here it comes now and then all of a sudden it's like i'll scream yeah um, it only lasts 10, 20 seconds and it goes away and then might come back in a minute and sort of consists. But it's not in the part of your leg you still have. It's in the part that you don't have. I, yeah, even now I can feel my, my foot now. It's, my foot feels really, real heavy. Right. Um, it, it's funny talking about um, losing my leg. They used to let me out for uh, for a day. I'd, I'd go back to the apartment where Karen was staying, so I'd go out of hospital. And I was sitting back in the lounge one day had a had a, actually had a, a vacuum on my on my forehead, suck, sucking the, the fluids out. Hooked up to a pump, um, and Karen's on the floor, and she had a foot up on me, and I was massaging the foot, and I thought that'd be nice to lie, lie in there beside her. So she got up and went to walk, 
couldn't comprehend that the leg wasn't there. As I took that one step, down I go and I hooked up this pump and I put it sideways. But uh, I said to Karen, don't you tell these nurses what happened because they won't let me out again. Right. Got yeah. back there. And- I think he really hurt his elbow when he fell down on the floor and he's yeah. like, don't you dare tell them I hurt my elbow. And I'm like, it's kind of important that they know that. But no, he thought he'd better hide that. Went on for a week and eventually I said to one of the nurses, do you know what happened last week? She went, what? I said, well, I got up and went to walk. She went, everyone does that. She said, I was waiting how long until until you'd be doing that. <laughs> but yeah, you start that, feeling. But funny enough, talking about the phantom pain is, I was taking some pretty hard medication like endone, and um, I sat down there for a bit. Um, but I, I hate medications. So actually, I um, just recently I've gone to this uh, cannabis can, cannabis oil, the uh, CBD. So CBD like, oil, yep. It doesn't affect you. And evidently from that, I think I've taken like two tablets in what's been probably three months. Mm. It just seems of no fan pain at all. You know, that CBD oil is pretty amazing stuff to where it almost like it 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 fixes whatever needs fixing. You know, mm. um, yep. my wife and I had been, t- oh, a couple of years ago we started taking it quite a bit and I'd had a... Um, uh, I'd had sinus surgery and I had this chronic uh, sinus infection sort of thing. That the sinus surgery didn't fix it. Antibiotics won't fix it. Can't, it won't go away. And probably, I don't know, a couple of months after taking the, the CBD oil every day, it, it went away. And, and a lot yeah. of people take it for pain of different things. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. doctor actually said to me, she said, oh, she said I'll, I'll give this to try, the CBD oil, but I guarantee you'll have to come back and get the THC oil. Right now, it's... Um, Amazed her that this CBD is just doing the job on its own. Doing I don't take it every day. I can sort of go for a few days or even a week without it, but then I do realise I've got to get it back in my system, so I'll get it back and it disappears again, the phantom pain. Is it is CBD oil legal there or is it prescription only? Prescription only at the minute. At the moment, okay. Yeah. It's funny, Australia just, they just um, legalised um, – Therapist, uh, uh, psychedelic therapy with with MDMA and psilocybin, so mushrooms, and they they're one of the one of the first countries in the world to actually legalize that in a therapeutic setting, and it, yeah. it surprised the hell out of me because Australia is a bit of a nanny state to where you know they won't let you do anything. You know, mm-hmm. you can't drive and eat a hamburger, and you know yeah. you can't do this and you can't do that. So I was very surprised that. That actually happened, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know if the CBD oil was was legal there or not. They're actually going through a process now. They're um, they're trying to bring. So it's like drink driving. You know, you can go to point naught five. Once you're over that, you can't drive. Um, so they're trying to get a like a I guess like a, a gauge going where you've got so much CBD oil in your in your system, you're right to drive. And I guess the technicalities of getting it, you know, in place. But that's what they're but, working at the minute. But CBD oil has no psychotropic effects. I mean, no, that's right. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I. I don't get that. Anyway, I digress. So you you've spent seven months in a coma. You've come out of the coma. Um, Kaz has finally convinced you that you don't have a left leg anymore, and you. I guess you had to believe her in the end. Did that? What? What was it like the first time you actually looked down and saw that you didn't have a 
a leg. What was that like? Yeah, well, uh, it's funny. Funny enough, I guess it was all bandaged up, so I could, didn't really see it till the end. But um, even my face was burnt that bad. Um, I said to the there's a, a specialist nurse used to come and she pretty much looked after me, the burns nurse. Or um, I said, I, I said, how bad's the burns in my face? There's only this little spot here. I think it's like a 20 cent piece. I don't know, your whole face is burnt. Um, I guess the medication I couldn't quite comprehend as to how bad I was. Yeah. Um, but my whole state of mind was just, my whole passion was just to get out and get back home where I knew once I was home, I was in my own environment where I could, I could heal so much better rather than being locked up inside. Right, that just just you know, from you being a um, active outdoors sort of fellow, just being locked up in hospital without any injuries at all. I mean, locked up like that without anything else going on would have been um, half torture for you. So it must have been not not good for you just being stuck in there. Oh no, I don't think it was a, a bad place to be. Um, as such, where I've got a pretty good sense of humour, I think. Ken probably doesn't think so, but. The doctor used to come in every morning. The main <laughs> doctor was in charge of in charge of um, what went on with me, so any other doctor had to go through him pretty much. He said uh, he actually used to come in when he when he signed on. He used to come into my room, have five minutes with me, a bit of a yarn. He said that put me in, put him in the mood, tell him a few jokes, and then he'd go on with his day. He said, but the worst days he had in hospital was the days that I was unconscious, I wasn't there. That was the day he found hard for him to get through the day. So, um, what I'm saying is, it was, it was a pretty, pretty good, relaxed place to be in. Yeah, I think that was the case for a lot of the nurses. They used to go and and see Dodge before they even started their shift, and then at the end of their shift, and put them back in a good mood to leave. Yeah, leave few, again. It a was a few tricks up the sleeve. I had, um, I used to get given chocolates, box of roses or something, and that. When they'd run out, I'd say, Karen, can you go get me some more chocolates? <laughs> She's thinking, you can't eat this many chocolates. Refill the chocolate drawer and bribe all the but nurses. On the night, when the, ner- <laughs> the, the night nurses would come in, it'd be like 11, 12, 12 o'clock at night, hey, Dodge, you got any more chocolates? I said, yeah, top drawer, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nurses. I, my brother was my brother broke his leg when he was younger, like had a horse flip over on him and broke his femur and was in traction in hospital for quite a long time. And, yeah, we learnt. During that experience, that yeah, the nurses they love the chocolate. You, yeah, you can get them to do yeah. anything if you can feed them chocolates. <laughs> nah, that, that good. Um, so it sounds you know you got. We'll get into the motivational speaking here in a minute, but you, you've you know from your experiences, you've you've got into some motivational speaking. But it sounds like you're a bit of a motivational speaker when you're still in there. Like the the doctors and the nurses would come in and if probably think if this guy can have a good attitude about life. I I got nothing to worry about. I can go about my day and and get things done. So it sounds like you were spreading the good word even when you were still in there. Yeah, I spent a bit of time when I was in America. I lived with uh, Gary Few for a while. Oh, really? So yeah, okay, like okay. Now we just joined all the dots. <laughs> okay, yeah. so you guys at home, Gary Lefew was a was a world champion bull rider, um, and then he got into coaching bull riding. But he's really big into the mental side of things like so much into the mental side of things that you would not think this guy was a bull rider you'd think he was some sort of a guru somewhere and i've actually i want to try to get gary on the podcast because he has some crazy stories about 
about crazy things. But yeah, tell me about your time with Gary Lefew because that how'd you get? Well, let's because he's he's like a legend. So how'd you fall in with with Gary? Oh, I um I decided when I was when I was borrowing, I want to try and progress and get somewhere with it. And uh, I said to Karen, I said the best bull riders in the world are in America. Gary Lefew's one of the best motivational and and he's, he's number one uh, broiling coach in the world as such. Um, so I packed up and went over there for a month and, and, and did, did a, a, a week school with him and then I went tripping around for three weeks. But he said, uh, when I left, he said, how about you come back and, and, and live here? So that's what I did and I went back there and lived there for the three months with him. Now you lived in Santa um, Maria? Santa Maria, yeah, on a Poma right. up in the yeah. little valley, yeah. beautiful place. Um, I was riding with his son, Judd Paul. We'd, we'd travel around together. And when Gary was home, we'd, oh, well, not even when he was home, I used to travel around with him a bit to a few shows in the old cow palace, cut his mechanic bull around and, um, yeah, sort of, he's certainly a character. But um, that was my, that was the real time I actually thought, well, it's not just, you know, bronze and there's more, more to, to riding bulls, you know, it's, it's the mental side of it's. And I, I sort of took that in, in with my life as well, living my life as, you know, be positive and forget the negatives. And I learned to have a lot there, hell of a lot. Yeah, uh, that, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, it's funny that that's, there's a, there's a link there because I was thinking about your outlook with what's happened to you and, and everything. And, and I'm like, oh, well, that would be a, that would be a part of progressing your outlook in life is spending time with Gary Lefew. Mm, yeah, that's a really good time. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so there's a story about when I guess you were out of the I guess you're out of the Burns unit, but you're still in hospital. Maybe you're in the Burns unit, but it's time for rehab. And the story I heard was that uh, they didn't think you were ready for rehab, and you were pretty sure that you needed to do some rehab. Yeah, I um. So we actually went over there for a day just to have a look at. I was still in, in the burn in, in the hospital on North Shore. They took me over for a day to show me where I was going to, the Ride Re- Re- Rehabilitation Centre, um, out of the ambulance. And then on the way back, I said to Karen, there's no way I'm going to go there. I, I just I despise it. The worst thing was because I was so active, um, the rehab centre I was going to was like a uh, I think was that more mental, was it? Yeah, oh, the floor that Jamie would have been on because it had burns unit, but also had um, oh, like the more neuro patients. So a lot of most mm. of the other patients were stroke victims. So we're okay. talking a lot of elderly people. Um, a couple of the only other burns people that were there were actually um, Refugee, refugees that had, had self harmed, mm. um, like set themselves on fire. Yeah, so there was a big. Thing. Gap, like it was even no, like very communication skills. There wasn't much there between where they were, the other Burns people were, and Jamie, and um, a lot of the, yeah, it was just not a great fit. Yeah, so, um, so the first day I was there, I they sort of set me up in my room, and um, I had a big room to myself, so no one they'd even talk to. Um, about probably the second day, I, I got myself in the wheelchair. I went for a bit of a wheel around and I said to the, the nurse, I said, um, what's the go? There's this gym in here. There's like all weights set up, like the actually the rehab, getting mobile type thing. 
said, when do I, when can I go in there? Can I just walk in any time? She went, no, nah, you've got to you've got to wait till we think you're ready to go in there. Um, I said, well, I'm ready now. She went, no, nah, no, nah, you, you sort of the first week we'll spend you'll spend in here, getting to work out everything, understand how everything works, um, and we'll assess you, and, and then when you're ready, we'll take you. So the third day I was in there, I actually got the wheelchair, and I, I, I drove down, wheeled myself down to the to the door into this weights room. They aimed at nine o'clock. I think I was there about ten to nine. They walked straight past me. I'm like, hey, can I come in? No, 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 you're not ready to come in yet. Fourth day, so the next day, I same thing. I'd wheel down there and sitting there waiting, and at half walk past, oh, he's still here again. Can I go in? No, no, your time's not ready. So I went there the fifth day, and um, wouldn't let me in. So I went around to the to the matron's office. I said, um. When the doctors come, can you tell tell them to come and see me straight away? So eventually the doctor come around and he said, what's wrong, Jamie? I said, um, mate, I, I need, I'm in here to get better. I'm not here to lay about. I want to get better. I want to get moving. I need to get into that gym. When can I go in the gym? So I look, you know, when, when, when you're ready, maybe two weeks' time, we'll take you in for five minutes, do a little bit, and then a couple of days later, come in for another five minutes. I said, no, 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 I'm here to get better. I said, I'll tell you what, if I'm not in there by next week, um, I'm checking out. He half laughed. So the next week, so after, on, on the Monday morning, I was down at the, at the um, gym again, ready to go in. No, you can't come in. So as soon as the doctors came, I said, mate, look, I've had enough. I'm getting in that gym. If I'm, if I'm, not, there, if I'm not there tomorrow, I'm gone. Next day, it wouldn't, wouldn't let me in. And so I wheeled around to the – there's a there's – a, a big glass room where the doctors used to sit there and have the little uh, meetings in the morning. So here I'm out in front of this little do- the doctor's room and they're sitting there and I can see them half looking around and half talking, what's this idiot doing out here? I'm just sitting there staring at them. Eventually one gets up and he comes out, what's wrong, Jamie? I said, mate, I've had it. I'm out. I need to be in that gym. You're not doing it. So there's a bit of paper you can I can sign so that you're not liable if I walk out of here. That's what's it called? A, um, oh, it's a certain. So yeah, it's, it's certain saying name. that you acknowledge you're leaving against their against their will. Against their Yeah. So he said, "No, there's no such thing." I said, "Mate, I know there is because I've already signed one years ago when I broke my neck at Sydney Show. I signed one. I walked out of hospital. So, so I know, I know that a certain thing exists. Tough life. So yeah, okay, I'll go and find you one. Anyway, so as he's gone off, I rang Karen. Said, uh, Karen, you better come pick me up. They're going to let me out of here. Really? I said, yeah, yep. So in the meantime, Karen's had I, enough brains to. I knew this was going. I knew this was coming. was going to happen. She's lined up physios and rehabs outside of the hospital, so I could go to because because with my accident, I was covered under my insurance block. You, you, so in, in Australia, we've got green slips. So when you have a, an accident. Um, that green slip covers your medical bills. So I knew that if they if I walked out of there, they wouldn't cover me. Um, so Karen had to have all these things in place, and that was the only chance that I'd be still covered medically, medically with my medical bills. Um, so by the time Karen's gone, come to the hospital to pick me up, I've got my bags packed, I've got the TV off the wall, the posters all on the bed, I'm dressed. He said, where's the doctor? I said, oh, he's going to get some bit of paper so I can sign it. By the time he's come back, he's just shaking his head. He said, oh, are you for real? I said, yeah, mate. 
I'm gone. Karen's here by then and yeah, off, off I went. Yeah, I think so you've been- gone into the into the physio and they're like, okay, come down here and we'll explain what we actually need to work on before you're even ready to leave. And the physio or the OT sort of said, okay, here's a medicine ball. You need to be able to sit on that without your you know, with your leg or holding onto anything, be able to balance on it. And he said, see how, like, he got on and gave a demonstration and see how I'm doing this, isn't this sort of clever? And, and Jamie, he's like, why don't you have a go? That'll just scale how much, like, you're going to have to progress before you can leave. So <laughs> they said, here you go, jump on this medicine ball, expecting him just to fall off, and he's just sat on it, lifted up his leg, not hanging on to anything, balanced perfectly. I'm like you don't know who you're messing with here. And Jamie's turned to him and said, is there anything else I need to accomplish before I leave? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he didn't realise he was he was dealing with a Guinness Book of Records <laughs> mechanical bull with a broken neck rider. Yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly uh, wasn't the normal type, type of person they deal with down there. Yeah, I don't think so. Um so let's jump jump ahead to we've talked all sorts about your, the the accident and the the you know some of the rehab and stuff and some of your experiences there. But I want to get to the to the motivational speaking stuff. You've been since your accident. You've been doing some motivational speaking. What uh, sorts of places have you been doing that at? I did one at the police academy in uh, was it Goulburn? in Goulburn. Yeah. Um, so it's like the Stott Squad. Um, the police uh, did that down there. Was uh, that was a very good one. Um, but probably the, the most memorable one I've done to date is uh, with the doctors. So it was a it was a worldwide doctors conference. People from all over the world coming coming to a conference in Sydney. They asked me to come down to there. Um, evidently, they they told me where it was at. But I tell them, but you've got to get to this place. This is where it's at. Karen's, you know where you're going? I said, yeah, mate, I've, I've typed it into the phone. We're off to go into Google Maps. Turned up at the wrong place, didn't we? I rang this girl that's organised. I said, um, listen, level floor, uh, level three, there's a there's a uh, conference uh, sign on, on, the, on the wall. Is that where we're at? Where, where is everyone? She went, no, no, you're, you're totally wrong suburb. We've had to get in a taxi and duck across the other side of the, the city and finally found this place gone in there and um, the main doctor that looked after me was in hospital. He was one of the keynote speakers there as well. Some of the things that he told me of his experience with me going through hospital, it just, uh, yeah, it was really come to life of what actually went, went through. But um, just sit there and talk to people of such high quality and try and expire, um, inspire them to, you know, to get on with life and, and live a better life. There's all the work with you did with the footy players too. That was pretty. Yeah, yeah, that was right too. Yeah, I went down, talked to the the, new, the state of origin, New South Wales state of origin team. Really, Carla Sharp. That's yeah, awesome. yeah, and I was very shy because they'd be NRL players, you know, like right. Everyone and you're and you're them. a footy guy to start with, so like that's yeah. a big deal to you. Always looked up to them. Yeah, I remember um. They were sitting on the on the uh, on, on the on the on the water on the beach in the surf club when I did, when I did my talk, and the, the, so the state of origin fellas go into a week's camp before the, before the games. Um, sitting around having a yarn, and I did my talk. And sitting around having a yarn on chairs in a big circle, 
And there's a there's a whiz bin in, in the in the middle of us. So that was in that. And after did my talk, they like not this bin and it's full of bees. So it was a bit of a, bo- a bonding thing from you know to get a few yeah. bees and loosen up and get get a team morale going. And just the the antics that they carried on with was yeah, something I'll never forget. Throwing phones out the out the window into the surf and. Um, but that, it was just good to be around such positive bonding fellas, you know. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of like it's interesting when you get to be around people who are very successful in what they do, no matter what they do, you tend to find there's a, there's a, a, common, there's a common mentality about them and a lot of times it's not, possibly the mentality you think it might be it's it's more of yeah it's just a positive outlook it's a it's a you know it's like the manifesting a car crash thing like yeah you know it's 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 like thinking good things are going to happen and like like being around gary a few i'm sure you got a lot of that that sort of stuff there too but you know it doesn't matter what 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 sport or discipline or business or whatever but you tend to find people that are reach the, the upper limits of whatever they do. They all have a, tend to have a, a similar mindset. Mm. I remember um, I went to New York when I was in the States. I was living in Texas. And I, I actually made a PBR Cup um, in, in New York. Walking there, Ty Murray was there. He, uh, yeah, Ty Murray was there, but he wasn't riding. He was retired, I think. Tough Hedeman was there. He was injured, wasn't riding. Jim Sharp was my biggest role model from my whole career. He was actually riding. And I was just blown away to be competing against these fellas. And my whole mind just went down, back down here. And I didn't wasn't successful on the day. But it made me think, you know, um, got to realise that I earned my way to get there. I deserved to be there. But just overwhelmed by being right. riding with those fellas of that stature. And it, um, it really made me think, you know, you've really got to work on that mental side of it at that stage even more, you know. But you, right. you do deserve to be there. Was that in Madison Square Garden? I couldn't really tell you where it is now. Mate, it was Madison Square Garden. I think the only PBR they have in New York is in Madison Square Garden. And, the, and yeah, you, guys you, home, you guys at home, this gives you an idea of, of the type of guy Dodge is, okay? The Madison Square Garden is famous around the world, okay, as a sporting venue. Like, it's it's the biggest thing and the biggest thing. And I think... Dodge may have road bulls in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, that could be the name of the place. I'm not, I'm not too sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's amazing. Um, got a brain injury, Warwick. Uh, that's my excuse to use a bit. But, but it sounds like the uh, – how did you end up with the with the, the, the head injury as far as the, the brain injury? Did that – like basically you came out of that fine? Yeah, um, good. I think I'm pretty good. I do have a little trouble making decisions at times, mm. I find. Um, simple things. It's like I'm a bit of a deep thinker. If I'm going to go and do something, I'll think about it, and there might be 10 different scenarios I can do to, to get that job done. So I'll sit there, like I say, manifesting about, well, I could do it like this, but this way might be easier. This way might be quicker. 
And I get stuck in that moment where you just can't make that decision. And mm, yep. I usually look to someone and say, well, what are we going to do here? As soon as I say we're doing that, yep, it's all done. That's yep. the only thing I can might tell, tell you something different, but I think that's the only real trouble I have. And it doesn't happen all the time. Um, when I get tired, I have a bit of trouble staying on track. Right. Um, so, Karen, back then, were you into the? Were you a counsellor back then, or did this experience influence you to want to help others? I think it did influence me to help others, especially with going to that rural um, and drought sort of team. But it was sort of I was doing some sort of stuff. Um, I definitely know. I, like I started on this pathway because it was my goal to become an equine-assisted psychotherapist. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. So to do that, I had to have my counselling stuff in place and and then do the equine-assisted stuff. So I've, I've actually done most of my training now, so I'm just going through the final stages of getting accredited. So that really led me into um, the whole counselling sort of stuff. And then, but I guess it's, surprised me how much I'm loving it, enjoying it, and how much it's opened up my mind to so many things. That's very cool. Um, so, Dodge, you ended up getting back on a horse. How, how long were you? How, how long after your accident were you back on a horse? I um, so I pretty much lived on a horse, uh, working. I'd get on the horse at daylight, I'd jump off at the dark, eat, eating your morning tea and your, and your lunch on the back of the horse. And when the accident happened, it was sort of taken away. And uh, to say that, I was, I was pretty much overriding horses. Um, it's it become a, like a chore. I, was, I didn't compete ahead of a lot of horses. did a couple of camp drafts, but that's about all. But I made a pact to myself that uh, 12 months after the accident, I'd get on a horse. That was just a little goal I had to set in my mind, part of getting better, I guess. And two days before the 12-month anniversary of the accident, I was just – was eating at me. I need to get on a horse. I need to get on a horse. I went, no, I'll just wait for those that 12 months. Um, you say 12 months that the morning I woke up, said, Karen, can you go and catch one of those horses? Oh, really? Said, yep. So she got the horse saddled up and I jumped on it and only rode probably, I don't know, 500 metres around the house. And that feeling of, as you get from horses, you know, it was, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to get back to riding horses. And then uh, one of the was the doctor that rang us. I was sort of. I think we were at um, at that point. James, like, because it wasn't just once he came home from hospital, it was all said and done. It was like came home, we were still flying back to Sydney like every couple of weeks. It was literally years of operations. But in between all that, he said, "I just want to do something that's not." operations and that because that was what our whole life evolved around for like literally what about three years we said I just want to focus on something else for a while and he wanted to I don't know I, I just read this book and it was about this fellow who had ended up in a wheelchair and and then he'd just done this big challenge and he um took his powered wheelchair across the uh desert in Australia and it was just this epic thing I said I just feel like, do we need to do a, something epic and do a horse ride? And then Jamie said, yeah, it sounds 
an idea and to raise money, which is what he he came up with that putting that double challenge on it to raise to raise no, money. I was thinking about too. The doctor said you'll never ride a horse again. Someone telling me that, like, okay, I'll prove you wrong. So that was a bit of a drive for me as well, you know. Um, so and, and and dragging the kids through what we've been through for the last three years, uh, we had to get away, go on a holiday. But I couldn't see the sense of going to Sydney or to a big town to have a holiday because we've been in and out of that place that, that, that frequent. So we ended up coming up with the idea, well, let's load some horses up and head out to Tilpa. Uh, thousand k's from home, double way oh, out. Six hundred, I think. Yeah, yeah, or nine hundred. But um, so it's in the outback Australia. So we load up five horses and head out west and um, decide while we're doing it, I'll raise money and hopefully inspire some people in my situation, if not worse off, to to get back to living. So um, yeah, we uh, we rode the horses back from Tilpa to Dubbo. And up being a bit over, I think it's not, not nearly 950 kilometres back in the Dubbo. And 950 kilometres? Yeah. That was pretty much um, when I got back to riding horses. <laughs> got, got thrown off <laughs> two or three times practising <laughs> on the quietest horse you'd ever have. <laughs> I'm, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm signed up for a 500-kilometre horse race in uh, Argentina next January, February, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm doing this amazing thing, going to ride 500 kilometres, and here you no, are. I mean, that's like your boat. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. Um, you mentioned a book a minute ago, uh, Kaz. Yeah. And uh, Jamie chose some questions for me to ask him, and the first one of them was, what book do you recommend most? So tell us all about this book, Jamie. And it says, not necessarily your favourite book, but one you think everybody should read. Your own book is my answer. Um, so going through school, I, I can honestly say I've never read a book in my life. I guess I've probably year one or two when they the teacher stood up in front of the class and brought the golden book out, read a couple of pages, I might have done that, I don't remember. But I've never actually read a book in my life. I sat down and tried to read uh, Tony Robbins a couple of times. I'd get halfway through and get bored. So my, I guess... Get out and write your own book. Uh, I'm, I'm a hands-on fellow. Get out and live life, and that's 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 the book I I choose to read. My own book, I guess. Creating my own that, life. That's awesome. Because I was I was thinking, you know, he's such an outdoorsy bloke and stuff, but he's chosen a book question. Like <laughs> this is going to be fascinating because he reads too. So I wonder what he reads. Like, yeah, sorry, to, sorry. To get, out, get out and write your own book, uh, Kaz. What about you? You got a you got a book suggestion? You you he's would like to share? Um, I don't know. Uh, I recently, I guess recently, The Body Keeps a Score was mm. pretty, yeah, that was pretty awesome, that that in itself. Yeah, it's one of those books, you know, when I did the podcast on books that have influenced me, it's one of those books like you read that and you're like, oh, that explains a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought of before and it changes probably the way you look at things and especially the way you look at yourself, you know, so... That's interesting. Uh, Dodge, your next question is what do you feel the worst advice given in your profession? And, and you've got to tell me what your profession is before you tell me your answer. What profession are you well, referring to? What I chose to that was um, uh, not so much my profession, but 
the advice I was, I was given, you can't do this, you can't. Like, I was never, I never meant to walk again, never meant to see again. Um, I'd never ride a horse again. So that was bad advice to me was to be saying mm-hmm. you can't do this. Um, to me as well, nothing is possible. You can do whatever you like if you put your mind to it and have enough dedication. That's sort of why I chose that was, you know, there's some bad advice given out there, but it's all in your own mind. Nothing's nothing's unreachable. You are living proof of that, but I actually think it was good advice the doctor told you you never ride a horse again because that's why you did. <laughs> True that. I guess <laughs> the, main, the main reason I was saying that was if I do fall off, having all the, uh, the, the skin grafts and that, it takes so long to heal. So I guess mm. that was the whole reason for that. Yeah, was is it like you can, uh, like injure the the skin grafts? Like, do they tear easily and things? Yeah, like they that? tear so it's like a piece of paper. They tear so easy, mm. and the, the healing process is probably three or four times longer. Right. Yeah, and I see a little mark on my head here from a hat all the time. It sort of rubs all the time. Uh, your hat rubs on your head, yeah. Yeah. So pad put inside it. We're right. Look like mm. cowboy again. And one last question that you chose, what do you do or where do you go to relieve stress or recharge your batteries? Or where do you find motivation or inspiration for what you do? Motivation and inspiration comes from the journey I've been on. Um, sit back and look around at where we've come from, what we've achieved to get to where we are now. Uh, it's all been hard work. Nothing has been given to us. Such... Um, and my happy place, believe it or not, is out in the paddock. I, I've usually got a few cows floating around home, and I go out and I feed them, and I'll sit there for half hour or an hour, and Karen sort of, I wonder where he's at. I'm out in the paddock talking to the cows. That's my happy place. So he's starting up uh, bovine-assisted therapy, Karen. <laughs> yes. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> hey, no, there is, there's, there's places where you can, you can pay a lot of money to just go and sit with a cow. Mm. Uh, Somewhere here in America, I've seen it. Yeah, we've got some nice, quite Brahmin cows, and they pretty much talk. You know, they, as soon as you hear the bike start, they come running up. What do you got for me today? So I find the Brahmins are really intelligent, and they pretty much play with it. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a, our old Brahmin bull that's been a massive part of our life for a long time. He turns twenty-one this year, so he's like one of our children. Yeah, and what's what, I've seen some pictures of him. What's the deal with him? Like, uh, did you did you have like some sort of an act with him, or take yeah, him around different places? When I was working at the sale yards, an agent came up to me. He said, uh, "He said, Jamie, you've seen that old Brahmin bull down there. He's, he's uh, the bull's up the sale." I said, "No, what is he, Cleve?" He said, "We're going to have a look." So I've gone down there and big, proper rodeo looking bull, grey yeah. Brahmin with cock horns. And within five minutes, I was in the in the yard with him, patting him, sitting on his back. I thought, oh. Just a freak of an animal. It's this, he can't have his head cut off. So I went back to the agent and said, Cleve, that bull there said, uh, I want him. Can you buy him for me? I don't care what he costs. He said, yeah. Oh, no, I, I didn't say, can you buy him? I said, I want him. I don't care what he costs. I want him. I said, I'll tell that the buyers to go dead. Otherwise, uh, so in other words, so the meat buyers don't buy him. I end up with him. I was telling one of the meat buyers, oh, that brown bull down in yard 200 and whatever. I said, can you buy them for me? Said, yeah, no worries. 
So this cleaves up on the on the stand, auctioning this bull off. Oh, $1,000. And then the, the meat buyer's gone $1,100. And then the auctioneer's gone $1,200. <laughs> it's got to about $1,500 and, the, and the, uh, the, the agent's gone. I told these buyers to go, Dad, what's going on? And he's worked out there. <laughs> you're, in a bid, you're in a bidding war with yourself. Bidding <laughs> <laughs> war with myself. So I took him home and I, I actually I had some radio cows I sold the same, at the same sale. I think it was your Birthday, even and James rocked yeah. up home. I said to Karen, I said, um, I've just bought a bull at the yards. Um, I'm going to come home and get the, the horse float and bring him home. I said, just sell all your cows. What are you going to do with this bull? I said, I don't know. Um, he's just a special animal. He's coming home. I think he was about five at the time. He was five, four, yeah. Five, so he wasn't old. And Jamie's come home with a double horse float with a big, big Brahmin bull loaded into a double horse float. And, then, and yeah, what's his name? Yeah, wildfire. Originally it was honey, but we named him Wildfire, a little bit more scary, I guess. When you're going, you're going out into the public and this, what's his name, Honey? <laughs> so what we used to do with him, we'd, we'd take him to birthday parties, took him to a couple of schools, so the kids can actually hands-on touch him and pat him. And then we got to the stage where we, we set up a bit of a, um, like an arena around, so we'd go to the radios and people would come in and sit on his back and we'd sell the photos. So that was sort of, that was his... He's, he's coming in yeah, the end. Yeah, but he's just sort of lived at home and, oh, God, he's been in the house and everything. He's sort of, everyone's like, oh, how did you train that? And you're like, you can't train that. He's just right. so willing. Whatever you, he just goes with the flow. <laughs> Whatever you want to do is like fine. Never, ever showed a bit of malice in his life. Really? Yeah, he's a gorgeous looking bull. Like like the pictures of him, like he's amazing looking. Wow. Well, we used, we used to have, um, where, where we live, there's a big, uh, big paddock in front of the house. Walk straight out onto the road. If he wanted to, he could just he could leave any time. But we used to leave the gates open. There's a main road. He'd just sit around the house. And uh, funny story about how intelligent the Brahmins can be. A uh, good mate, actually your your second cousin, Les Parnaby, got married, and uh, we, he said, "Oh, I want to take wildfire." And, and Vicky wants to ride wildfire down to the like as an outdoor outdoor uh, ceremony, but down to where we're going to get married. So, Vicky, so the bride's going to ride the Brahma bull? Going to ride okay. the Brahma bull down, down wow. to the ceremony. And at the end of the night, um, we are all camped as, as an old uh, cricket ground where he got married on the racetrack. So there's trailers and caravans and uh, tents where everyone was camping. There's a big room there. We are going to have our breakfast that morning. And by that night, when we went to bed, we, we had a camper and we, we just let him go in front of our front of our, our, our trailer. Well, he was out in the he was in the in the ring, yeah. but then he just walked back and and found us for some reason because we'd borrowed this camper trailer, so it wasn't even ours. But he knew where we were and sat outside the door all night. He sat there all night, and then when we went to breakfast that morning, we had, it was probably a, a good hundred metre walk to where the breakfast was. Sitting inside, he and I looked out the door and. He comes walking past the door. And what's wildfire doing anyway? He's walked around, he's he got to another door, he's looked in, he spotted us. And he went back and sat at the to the, at the trail till we come back. Just like a dog. Like, like a dog. But a couple of months before that, we'd done another wedding, another good mate of mine, Dave Mason, rode bulls in America. He got married and he didn't ride, his wife didn't ride 
the ball to the to where they got married, but just for the pictures. But when we left that day, we left him behind because he wanted to join some of his cows to it. So I reckon it was he, he was thinking last time we went away to one of these functions, he left me behind. I'm not going to let this happen this time. So that's why I reckon he was <laughs> sleeping with us. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not going to left time this time. That's awesome. He sounds like a special animal. Yeah, been a big part of our life. I bet. Well, we've been chatting for quite a while, so it's been such a pleasure talking to you guys. I think both of you are absolutely inspirational. I'm, I'm glad I got you guys on the podcast because your story, your story, Dodge, is amazing. Um, the I think that like the resilience that you had learnt from your career riding bulls and everything that you did leading up to the accident, I think helped you through it. And and Karen, your your exposure to him riding bulls for twenty years, I think, may have helped with your resilience of dealing with the whole thing. But you guys are absolutely inspirational. It's just been a pleasure having you guys on the podcast. That's been great, Roy. Great to finally meet you. Catch up. Is there is there uh if people want to kind of book you for um like inspirational speaking things like that is there any way uh we they can get a hold of you yeah i think there is a website jamiemanning.com.au or something oh there we go now and there's an email attached to that yeah there is yeah perfect yeah Yeah, so if any of you guys uh have some sort of uh association or foundation or whatever that you need a very motivational speaker i think these Dodge might be your man. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure and an honour to have you guys on. And uh, I think you guys are, are just a, a great testament to other people as to how to live life to the fullest. And I just really appreciate you guys being on here. Yeah, write your own book. Write your own book. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. And for you guys at home, uh, thanks so much for joining us on on the podcast. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.